Peace and blessings, scholars and siblings in the movement for joyful revolution and radical love. My name is Ebony Isis Booth, and this is the Black in Burke podcast, a limited production series that explores and interrogates systems, institutions, social norms, human intimacy, life, and liberty through the lens of my scholarship in women's studies at the University of New Mexico. I unpack what I've learned while traversing my own hierarchy of needs related to self-actualization, community actualization, and cultural perpetuity. Hashtag no Maslov, because all credit goes to the Blackfoot First Nations model, which operates under the auspice that time is an expansive concept and that there are multiple dimensions of reality. I record this series while living on unceded land of Tewa-speaking peoples, a descendant of enslaved Africans, and an organizer for Black joy and transformational healing. This show serves as the final project for Black Lives Matter Global Perspectives, led by Dr. Tiffany Florville for the spring 2021 semester. In this episode, I will delve deep into the implications of 75 years of immigration policy in the United Kingdom in order to draw comparisons and parallels related to settler colonialism and the implications of Britain's imperialist rule on Black lives. We explore Pan-Africanism, Black internationalism, and anti-Blackness during the 20th century in the United Kingdom. We will do this by exploring the infamous Windrush generation and subsequent scandal of 2018 and look at similarities where immigration law, xenophobia, settler colonialism, and racism function in the present-day movement for Black lives, U.S. immigration policies, and the ongoing violent occupation of Palestine. This is not an exhaustive production and will undoubtedly miss a full and comprehensive report on each ethnic, class, religious, or racial group impacted. It will, however, present a central question of how Britain reconciles centuries of imperialist rule while prioritizing a civilized aesthetic. What is Britishness? And how is that dissimilar from whiteness? And to what lengths has Britain been willing to go to obfuscate its white supremacist ideology and ostensible racial discrimination policies? How do colonization and civilization interact in these situations? So many questions, but let's discuss, shall we? Now I've broken the episode down into segments that will allow us to unpack a brief history of the Windrush generation, which resulted in a socio-political scandal that threatened to displace and delegitimize thousands of British nationals in 2018 under then Prime Minister Theresa May's parliament. From there, we'll cover spatial realities of blackness as an expansive concept of political, cultural, racial, and ethnic geographies marred by the persistence of anti-blackness as response. We'll close by examining what happened to a generation of displaced children and loyal subjects to a disenchanted crown. There is an overwhelming amount of literature to consider on the topic, but for the purpose of this episode, I've reviewed books, articles, speeches, and documentaries to support my argument that black and brown people must be included as respected British nationals, despite the wretched history of colonization and that the refusal to acknowledge the impact of racism serves the white supremacist narcissist delusion that capitalism demands of its engineers. So let's begin by unpacking the origins of the Windrush generation, okay? 
The sources that are being used here uh, include Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth and the concept of the new man, Aimé Cesar's Discourse on Colonialism. Also, we'll talk look at the BBC's reporting on the Windrush Generation and subsequent scandal of 2018. Uh, additional readings include Camilla Hawthorne's Black Spatial Matters, Adam Bledsoe's Primacy of Anti-Blackness, and David Alusoga's documentary, The Unwanted, The Secret Windrush Files. So if there's not much more to do about setup, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Unpacking the origins of the the Windrush generation. Okay, so following World War II, as a part of the UK's political and economic relief strategies to rebuild infrastructure and its labor force, endeavors were made to bolster the economy by formally asserting the right of all subjects to move freely within the Commonwealth under British Nationality Act of 1948. Most of the populations that made up the Commonwealth were black and Asian, but a few of the original subjects were predominantly white or came from predominantly white countries. At the time, the idea was to re-engage the old Commonwealth from places like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The act allowed for ease of mobility through the Commonwealth for white subjects without consideration or expectation that a surge of black West Indian subjects would emigrate to the land of milk and honey instead. So on May 27, 1948, a ship named MV Empire Windrush departed from Jamaica, headed to port at Tilbury, England, carrying 492 passengers, nearly half of whom were children. The adult passengers were workers from Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, as well as other small islands that make up an ethnic community referred to as West Indian. A relief squad of essential nature, if you will, it was intended that the passengers would help to fill critical labor shortages in reconstructing the country after World War II. The maiden voyage of intentional immigration boasted a ticket price of only 28 pounds and a promise of housing and employment. West Indian subjects were under the impression that the streets of England would be paved with gold, but were met with spoiled milk and cold honey as the dreary climate, broken infrastructure, and entrenched racism limited their access to proper housing, food rations, and low-level service positions. In this discourse on colonialism written by poet Aimé Césaire, he wrote that Europe is unable to justify itself either before the bar of reason or before the bar of conscience, and that increasingly it takes refuge in a hypocrisy which is all the more odious because it is less and less likely to deceive. Now, as we look at the events that took place in the UK between 1948 and 1971 with respect to migration of Commonwealth subjects, Cesar's claim becomes more salient. Despite the fact that Britain had just signed the Nationality Act, officials viewed news of the Windrush's voyage as an incursion that could potentially be detrimental to the strength, harmony, and cohesion of European culture. While the ship's manifest showed that skilled laborers were on board, British authorities were preoccupied with the racial identities of its migrant subjects. It is here that I want to note Adam Bledsoe's reflections on the nature of anti-Black oppression. 
Now, while Cesar's argument designated the proletariat problem apart from the colonial problem, Bledsoe urges us not to conflate anti-Black oppression with class-based oppression because anti-Blackness eclipses class. Bledsoe's argument is born from contemporary scholarship of Black geographies, but it is salient even in retrospect. He writes, anti-Blackness and the dictates of capitalism work together to structurally oppress working class and underemployed Blacks. He goes on to explain that anti-Blackness is a societal logic which assumes the inhumanity and thus spatial illegitimacy of Black populations, regardless of their class status. So what audacity it might take to relocate hundreds of Black people and their children in order to extract labor for inequitable pay, housing, food, or education. I mean, it reads like a reverse history of the transatlantic slave trade or settler colonialism and promenade. But the point here is that anti-Blackness is driving the difficulties and challenges of the project of relocation. Now remember, the intention at the outset was to rebuild infrastructure and fill critical labor positions. However, the intention did not make space for or spatially legitimize Black bodies being the ones to do that. The gag is that the Caribbean or West Indian population that came, came specifically to work. The entire project itself was to seek employment and prosperity within the, the, at the, at the, the, the location of the mother country versus on the islands in rural communities. It's here that I would like to bring in Camilla Hawthorne's article, Black Matters or Spatial Matters, Black Geographies for the 21st Century, which identifies the urgency of what she calls deadly entanglements of white supremacy, capitalism, settler colonialism, patriarchy, and heteronormativity as topics that call for careful consideration with respect to space, place, and power. The first wave of Windrush migrants would give way to some 500,000 UK residents who were born in a Commonwealth country, such as Jamaica, India, Pakistan, Kenya, or South Africa. Following 30 years of settlement, self and community actualization, police harassment, government surveillance, civil rights struggles, political theater, and the creation of what is now known as the hostile environment, Europe passed the 1971 Immigration Act. This gave amnesty to citizens already living in the UK to stay, but promised to close borders to all persons in the Commonwealth who could not provide a British passport, work permit, or proof of a parent or grandparent who had been born in the UK. So since the Home Office hadn't kept records of its Commonwealth citizens who were already in the United Kingdom, the burden of proof of national legitimacy rested on the claimants. If you were black, you could be suspected or accused of illegal status without warrant or means of appeal. Despite the fact that immigration had slowed significantly at this time, the promise to close borders unintentionally influenced a latent surge in black citizens who once again traversed the Atlantic in service to the mother country. 
This perpetuated the confusion and further empowered police and officials to build anti-black rhetoric and surveillance strategies to further delegitimize and harass black citizens. The contradictions and hypocrisy of European immigration law are fascinating as they vacillate between goodwill missions to recruit workers and covert government operations to control immigration and restrict employment and other civil liberties for Black and Asian Europeans. Between 1948 and 1971, and even until now, West Indians, Black, Asian, Indo-Pak, and African nationals continue to resist the veiled racist immigration policies that use phenotype as an assumption of supremacy rather than to attempt or to accept accountability for what is referred to as ostensible racism or overtly racist ideologies. Now, Camilla Hawthorne's call for the pressing need for black geographies and spatial agency for black people is evinced in the disproportionate impacts of climate change on black communities, the surveillance and policing of black neighborhoods, and the new configurations of anti-black racism, nationalism, and xenophobia represented by the global resurgence of the far right. It was right-wing conservative ideologies that were empowered the Teddy Boys of the 1958 London race riots or the murder of Kelso Cochran by the police in 1959. I mean, by 1962, the classification of skilled versus unskilled workers was implemented as a covert way to regulate employment opportunities that would only affect black citizens. It was the 1964 Race Relations Act that boasted such political jargon as nigger hunts and slogans like Keep Britain White or KBW. Since 1948, the United Kingdom has seen more than a dozen nationality and immigration laws with varying degrees of severity, but none of which makes racial disparity a central policy focus, never admitting to the abuse and always gaslighting the world as well as its subjects with properly stated public macro aggressions. Here's an interview excerpt from the documentary by David Olusoga, The Unwanted, The Secret Windrush Files, explaining Britain's uh, conviction with regard to propriety and refusal to admit wrongdoing with regard to race relations. Britain has an image that it has to maintain. And the one thing that it cannot do is itself undermine that image by putting into law racist grounds on which to exclude black people coming into the United Kingdom. They cannot admit publicly to being racist. And then we move into a situation in which they find a way to do something racist, which is can be said not to be racist. How many times have we experienced government policies or institutions inside dominant systems and hegemonic structures that do something racist and then deny that it's racist? In 2010, 
The British Home Office destroyed landing cards of the Windrush migrants, leaving their children without proper documentation to assert or make claim to their own legitimate residency. As political regimes changed over the years, immigration acts of 2014 and 2016 caused individuals who lacked proper documentation to become fearful of deportation. And justifiably so, because by 2018, as many as 83 individuals who had arrived in Britain before 1973 had been removed from the country. In an unprecedented act for UK, policymakers and parliamentarians, then Prime Minister Theresa May issued an apology for the mistreatment of the now mature children of the Windrush generation. British officials called the scandalous eviction of lifelong residents and rightful nationals both foreseeable and avoidable. In addition to the apology, a formal inquiry into the Home Office resulted in changes which included, one, a full review of the hostile environment immigration policy, the appointment of a migrants commissioner, establishment of a race advisory board, and reparations from the Windrush Compensation Scheme, which plans to pay out as many as 15,000 claimants worth an estimated 281 million US dollars before April of 2023. Additionally, a separate task force was established to give individuals adequate and correct documentation going forward. More than 1,200 people received their citizenship or papers since the Windrush scandal broke in 2018. Here's audio of Theresa May issuing the apology. I want to reiterate how much we value the contribution that has been made by Commonwealth citizens who've made their life here in the UK to the United Kingdom. Um, I particularly want to acknowledge that as we come together and, and celebrate the Commonwealth and the ties between us at, and the connections between us at Trotton. And particularly the Windrush generation helped to build the country that we are today. And I want to dispel any impression that my government is in some sense clamping down on Commonwealth citizens, particularly those in the Caribbean who built uh, a life here. I take this issue very seriously. The Home Secretary apologised to the House of Commons yesterday for any anxiety caused, and I want to apologise to you today. Those who arrived from the Caribbean before 1973 and have lived here permanently without um, significant uh, periods of time away in the last 30 years have the right to remain in the UK. Uh, and as do the vast majority of long-term residents who arrive later. I don't want anybody to be in any doubt about their right to remain here in the United Kingdom. This issue has come to light because of measures that we introduced recently to make sure that only those with a legal right to, to live here can access things like the NHS and rented accommodation. And this has resulted in some people who, through no, through no fault of their own, has resulted in some people now needing to be able to evidence their immigration status. And the overwhelming majority of the Windrush generation do have the documents that they need, um, but we're working hard to help those who do not. And we've put in place a number of measures to deal with that, which the Home Secretary announced yesterday. She's going to set up a new dedicated team, a helpline, 
uh, to help people evidence their right to be in this country and access services. Uh, it will be tasked, the job of this team will be to help uh, these applicants demonstrate that they're entitled to live in the UK and it will be tasked with resolving cases within two weeks of when the evidence has been produced. You know, Theresa May's apology for any anxieties caused by the Windrush scandal is a far cry from the type of accountability of such thinkers as Frantz Fanon, who admonished his comrades to stop envying Europe and take Europeans to task for failing in the mission to rectify humanity's problems that he asserts they caused by finally bringing their weight to bear violently upon these elements, modifying their arrangement and their nature, changing them and bringing the problem of mankind to an infinitely higher plane. Fanon calls for the so-called third world to start a new history of man, apart from the settler colonialist model and mindset. You know, I wonder what he would have said about that apology and also what unit of measurement or capacity to hold would even be sufficient for the whole weight to bear. I mean, that includes global imperialism, occupations, dehumanization according to these false standards of racial superiority that were made up. I mean, if nothing else, the reparations and acknowledgement answers that black and brown people absolutely can be British and Britishness can also include being black and brown. It also states that people have always been who they say they are. It was the refusal of inclusion and xenophobia led by whiteness that precluded that reality or the opportunity at self-actualization and determination for hundreds of years. You know, the world has learned from the United Kingdom more than they would like to take ownership of. The United States revolted against imperialism to project and perpetuate racism, chattel slavery, genocide, and capitalism, where freedom and justice was intended for all white male landowners. The United States models xenophobia and violent colonialist behaviors such as holding infants in cages away from their families while doing little to nothing to make citizenship attainable for non-white immigrants. The same year that Britain was consumed by the alleged incursion by West Indian migrants of the Commonwealth, Israel was beginning its occupation of Palestine and resettling Jews from Europe to Gaza. It will take up to 2023 for Britain to compensate less than 5% of its migrant citizens for the hostility of the past 75 years. Today, airstrikes land on Palestinian families who are being evicted from their homes in order to make way for Israeli settler expansion. And while the reality of today does seem grim in many areas, I'm hopeful that this first step towards some accountability by the United Kingdom will maybe create a ripple that might also affect the rest of the world so that they might simply consider civilization over colonization. (music) 
That's been my time here on Black in Borque. My name is Ebony Isis Booth, and I am so grateful to you for spending time listening to me unpack and unwind a semester of great growth and expansion, intellect and learning about the historical context of blackness in this world uh, that I live in. I have learned so much that it's oozing out of my ears and have so many more things that I wish to uh, know about, learn about, and live through, um, which includes expanding my uh, my understanding of my own blackness and identity to my relatives uh, in other parts of the world, in Europe, and knowing that wherever you are, there's black people there, <laughs> which includes in the future. So I hope to see you there soon. Be light, shine.